0: Missed the show? No worries. We've got you covered on the podcast tonight. On point, we'll look into the games being played by the Liberals trying to hide their spending and willing to take this country into an election in the middle of the pandemic. We will talk about the games. We'll chat with Don Drummond, who is warning what happens if this spending continues. Remember, he was the architect of getting Kretchen and Martin out of the debt crisis in the 90s, as well as helping the McGuinty Liberals out of their spending problems. He's got a warning now. Why are insurance companies gouging, if not cutting off, long-term care homes? And can they survive? And why is dancing okay but pumping iron is not? We will look into that and more. Let's get talking.
1: By get getting through to you? The point, Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. We
2: proposed a special committee, an extraordinary measure, so that parliamentarians can dig into all the spending that this government has put forward in exceptional circumstances to help Canadians through this COVID crisis. The Conservatives put forward a uh, motion that clearly outlines their lack of confidence in the government. The opposition is going to have to decide whether they want to make this minority parliament work or whether uh, they have lost confidence in the government.
0: All right. Justin Trudeau playing a game of political chicken, and he's playing it at our expense, just hoping you are not paying attention Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday October 20th and it has been a very busy busy day it was like watching a tennis game just going back and forth back and forth back and forth watching press conferences but uh, the big question tonight you know are we going to be heading into the polls and that we will find out tomorrow afternoon when a vote is going to be held so we just watch the opposition go back and forth about this issue of uh, a committee that the conservatives want to, form to look into Liberal spending during the pandemic. It's not just about we spending. It's about that as well as the 300000000000 billion-ish the Liberals have spent rushing out the door in under five months. And it's very, very clear that the Liberals do not want their spending scrutinized. They don't want anything scrutinized, including their health approach to this pandemic. And whether they like it or not, that is the job of the opposition. It is their job to challenge, to question what is being spent or what the government's been doing. And other than we, which there are still a lot of questions about, there are questions about other sizable chunks of money that have gotten rushed out the door that raise red flags. And that would include millions uh, that got handed to a former Liberal MP at of Quebec for ventilators that his company made that uh, haven't even been approved by Health Canada, things like that. And so the Liberals have decided to turn what should be a very simple motion put forward by the Conservatives to form this committee into a confidence vote that could bring them down.
2: Threatening an election rather than being accountable for a Prime Minister who's already on his third personal ethics investigation. It's time for some accountability.
0: Indeed it is. That's leader uh, Aaron O'Toole. And um, the Liberals seem to be willing to move this thing into DEFCOM 9. And, uh, you know, they say that the Conservative motion to form this committee, which would be to probe possible corruption, is proof that they don't have confidence in the government. Therefore, it should be treated as a confidence vote, which is ridiculous. But worse, they actually argued today that a committee would be, well, too much of a distraction while they, quote, focus on Canadians, which is, again, silly, because... As David Aiken pointed out, you can chew gum and walk at the same time. And if they can shut down government for five weeks and surely, uh, you know, also having nothing to hide, then they can spare time to do something like look into their own spending. So that is just a bunch of BS. I mean, committees are formed all the time. It is where MPs scrutinize all sorts of government issues. It is part of their job. But what was made clear today is that the liberals want control of who sees what When it comes to spending, and now they're saying, "Hey, hey, hey, we'll also create a special committee to look into what we feel deserves scrutiny." Conveniently, their proposal would stack a number of Liberal MPs, which, you know, despite having a minority government, would put the Liberals in control of what the opposition sees, also giving them the ability to shut it down, just like they did with S and C. They want the power they had as a majority government, which is absolutely. Nonsense, and David Aiken called them on it.
3: Your government interfered with the workings of parliament in the middle of the pandemic by proroguing, and since you've come back, your government has filibustered committees, which probably had lots of important work to do, but your government decided to filibuster. Are you certain that it is not the government that is interfering with the important work of this, uh, of of the government of Canada in the time of pandemic?
2: Well, David... As you know, the governments are independent. They make their own decisions.
0: Yeah, they do. And by the way, never give David Aiken the last question because he'll make you look stupid. And you do. Because this government has tried everything possible to make their scandals go away. They ran and were elected on transparency. Do you remember? It was all about transparency. All about sunny ways. And yet, time and again, they prove anything but. And so they're going to argue, well, hey, Mr. Trudeau testified and we've answered all these questions about we. Not to mention we handed over 5,000 we documents. Well, here's the truth. Those documents were heavily redacted by them. The government's own legal clerk said that's not okay. So it was not transparent. So I don't know if the liberals are drunk on power. I don't know if they're arrogant as hell, maybe both but if they think they can just spend and do whatever they want without any scrutiny in a minority government and apparently they do then they've lost the cause and they're going to blame the opposition for this but make absolutely no mistake this is the liberals they want to do this they want to make sure no questions are asked about very questionable things and they're willing to do it in the middle of a pandemic and as charlie you know charlie angus argued in the house today while millions are losing jobs or are about to. We got kids that can't go out for you know, trick-or-treating trick or and these are the games being played.
3: Don't give me any of this hypocrisy about how the Liberals actually care about people in a pandemic. When to protect the Prime Minister and in an investigation, he's willing at the worst economic and financial medical catastrophe in a century that he'd rather go to the polls than actually have the decency to answer questions of parliamentarians.
0: You know, it's Justin Trudeau who said, not so long ago, that he admires a basic dictatorship, and I, I just didn't think he'd actually try to turn into one. And so, look, the opposition's going to have to put their money where their mouth is. And Angus is right when he pull, po- you know, points out the absolute gall of this stunt, and it is a stunt because this has never been done. It has absolutely never been done. Confidence votes are had, held all the time because an opposition member called to create a committee it's absolutely nuts. And maybe they're doing some internal polling that says, hey, you guys are real popular, maybe it's time to go now. But it's going to be Jagmeet Singh, who will decide whether to prop up this gull or call it out. And here's what he said today.
3: I can't imagine how the Prime Minister of Canada would look those people in their eyes, people who are afraid and worried and say, I know you're worried and afraid, but we're going an election because I don't like a committee. That is outrageous and it is absurd. Let me be very clear. The only way there is an election right now is because the prime minister chooses to have one.
0: Right. So put your money where your mouth is, Mr. Singh, because I, you know, you are the kingmaker or you're gonna be again, the liberals whipping boy. And I don't know because tomorrow we'll tell the story And it is very clear that liberals feel they have nothing to lose. So maybe it is time they get called out. The bloc has said they're not going to support it. The conservatives have said they're not going to support it. The NDP have made it very clear that they're not happy about this. But the question is, will they say one thing and do another? Welcome back. So if we're heading into an election and who knows, could happen anytime, then I really, really hope people in this country start to look at the bottom line. Because as I was reading in the Globe and Mail, Justin Trudeau's spending plans are starting to look like uh, a lot like his dad's, which ushered in big spending despite a slowing economy. And the spending we're seeing today, if it continues going forward, could lead us to the crisis that we saw in the 90s, where we had debt levels soaring to dangerous levels, and then it created a debt crisis, which led to cuts and downloading to the provinces under the and Martin government. But worse, if this spending isn't brought under control, it's our kids Who gets stuck with all of this? And should interest rates go up, as expected, the next generation gets buried with it for decades. My next guest knows of this pain and is just the latest economist issuing the warnings because he had a seat at the table during the last debt crisis and helped the Kretchen government get out of it. Professor Don Drummond is joining us now. He's a fellow at Queen's University but was Assistant Deputy Minister of Fiscal Policy at the Federal Finance Department in the 90s and, of course, writes about this issue for The C.D. Howe Institute. Good to have you. Thank you very much. That's what happens when you have a long title. It takes a long time to get to you.
2: (laughs) Well, in universities, the longer, the long titles just mean they don't pay you anything. Short titles, (laughs) you get paid. Long titles, you don't get paid. So just now you'll know how that code works
0: yeah I'll never apply them. okay, there you go you um you write a pretty blunt message in this particular report that if the Trudeau government delivers on these big spending promises as they laid out in the throne speech, you know that that it can't either be done without tax increases or big cuts and it will be the kids that are saddled with it, and as you say, we don't have the right to do that.
2: Well, I was hoping I was getting in a message a little bit before that. And that we don't necessarily know the answer to this because we don't really know what the plans are. I think we have to put a ring fence around the responses to COVID 19. Huge government spending increases, validated grosso modo by what's happened in health and what's happened to the economy. But what comes after? All we have is the indications from the speech from the throne, and they're always vague documents, but this one is really the vaguest. It it doesn't have anything, and the entire reference to fiscal is one sentence that said plans must be made responsibly. That's it, out of pages and pages of a speech. So it refers to a lot of big-ticket items, but there's many, many ways that they could approach, and quite frankly, we don't know how they intended. And it's amazing. We're talking about things like national pharma care or a basic income. There is no debate going on in the country of how those should be designed, what, who, who should they affect, what the amounts would be, and what they would cost. And I, That's what I find disturbing. Uh, yeah, I think if you do them in a certain way, if you do them fulsomely, yeah, we're going to have a big debt problem, but they don't necessarily have to be done that way. But let's have some information and then debate how we should be doing them.
0: Right. I mean, we haven't even thought about the uh, sectors that need help, be it uh, rail, uh, airline, uh, energy sector. There's all sorts of of big sectors that still have their hand out to the government and they're already making all these big promises. And several economists, uh, past bank governors, uh, even the parliamentary budget officer, they've all warned that if the spending isn't controlled, the dam's going to burst. But, you know, we I think people forget that coming into this thing, GDP was flat. And I think a lot of people think all of a sudden, like post-World War II, everything's going to be gang gangbusters, it's not.
2: Well, I've been greatly perturbed. Uh, Twice the Globe and Mail has run editorials saying that we should take a chance and grow our way out of the debt, as we did it after the Second World War. But from the end of the Second World War into the mid-1970s, our real economy grew by 4.7% per average, when we haven't even come remotely close to that ever since, and inflation averaged 4.5, and we're having trouble getting up to 2% inflation. So the world has changed since then. The growth rate shifted down in the mid-1970s, and it took 20 years, basically, for governments to recognize that and deal with that, and the growth rate is shifting down now. Will governments recognize it? And you're kind of wondering, well, maybe not, given the evolved these spending plans because if you don't raise taxes, the money's not going to come in the front door to start spending this out the back door.
0: Right. And everyone is, is working off the current assumption that interest rates, you know, they've been great for a long time. Banks have been pushing us to borrow. Everyone's assuming they're not going to go up, despite the warnings from many that they will, in fact, go up. They have to go up um, and, and we will have to pay for that. Um, but on the other hand, Mr. Uh, Professor, a lot of people seem to be very, very comfortable with carrying big deficits right now.
2: Well, but a lot of it just hinges on exactly what you said. What is the course of interest rates? If, if any, anybody who is in misfortune almost these days to be a, a net saver, you, you're looking at uh, GIC rates and the like, even, even long-term government bonds. They're not even close to 1%. You're not even coming close to covering inflation. And, of course, it's a dream if you're a debtor and a borrower, as the government obviously is, how long will that stay in place? How much will that go? Of course, we don't know those answers. If they stayed super low for a long time, Everything could be fine. We could fund all of this. The problem is they, if they go up at some point and you've built up this huge debt, then you're stuck, right? You could be going along nicely. Maybe for the next five years, the interest is very low. And maybe for the five or ten years after that, once you've accumulated this mass amount of debt, the debt goes up a lot. And as that turns over, that's going to cost a lot of money for the current taxpayers, but even more in terms of the penalty for the next generations of taxpayers who had nothing to do with creating the problem
0: right, and, and this government, as you well know, has said that taxes will not go up, even though they 've got a new clean fuel tax that is actually going to drive up costs at the pump and certainly on heating and other things. but we haven 't seen a budget, we have no actual true accounting of the numbers. We could be heading into a snap election as early as tomorrow, and we have no real concept of where the dollars and cents are. Based on what you've seen and your knowledge dealing with governments of the past, and that would include the mcguinty wind government, which you gave several recommendations of how to get Ontario out of trouble, which were mostly ignored. Uh, I would have taken them, but mostly they were ignored. What would you suggest get us out of this?
2: Well, I think first we have to define where we want to go. Uh, to get out of it but what does get out of it mean and, and one of the big questions for us as a society and it's, and, and it's a, a moral question as much as anything else who should pay for the economic response for covid19 because in a lot of fiscal scenarios and i think to do the speech from the throne basically says we're going to bundle that up put it off to the side and we're going to plunk it down on our kids and our grandchildren maybe even is that right Because they're probably going to have their own crises to deal with. I hope not, but they may have a pandemic, they may have economic recessions, they may have higher interest rates. And remember, too, there's fewer of them at working age to support us, the previous generations of the older folks, and that's going to be a load for them to carry. Is that right? If we should start wearing away and paying back the COVID over our life, then we have to apply a fair bit of fiscal restraint once COVID has subsided to a certain degree, and there's. I'm not saying to start tomorrow. That would be a disaster. We have to continue to support the economy for a while, but we have to pull it back. But I almost think before we get into numbers and how to approach it and the policy, we have to decide almost the philosophy of where we want, what's fair, what's just. And one of the basic questions, how much insurance do we want to take? If you think interest rates are going to stay low, do you want any insurance against that? And everybody who says that they're going to stay low and we should count on that, I always ask them, do you have insurance on your house? okay yeah. of course I got a house <laughs> my house could burn down and I have nothing I said, ah, has it ever burnt down no then why you got it that's the kind of thing you're talking about we saw that we didn't have insurance in the 70s and 80s and 90s and the big problem that created and the sacrifices don't we want at least a measure of insurance against that but that's that's the discussion we need to have that requires information I mean as you mentioned I was at finance in the 90s and Everybody will focus singularly on the budget of 1995, but I thought more important, that government of the day put out what we called the purple and the gray book before the budget and signaled to people what the issues were, what the challenge was, and in general, the thinking of the government how they're going to handle. I don't think there were all that many surprises when we came to the 1995 budget. We don't have the equivalent of the day. And full understanding and sympathy of the government, man, the whole country and the whole world got whacked over the head with a pandemic and they've had to put all resources into that so i'm quite cognizant let's not do critical if they're not thinking of what's going to happen in the next five or ten years but the speech from the throne does that without really bringing canadians into the tent to what's the thinking and what's the background behind that
0: well, I think a lot of people forget what it was like uh, to see their parents with a home at 19% interest rates. They forget inflation uh, that we saw back in the day. I was, I was very young, but I remember it uh, mildly. And I think a lot of people just don't see what they don't see. So it's not a problem, and it's going to confront people. I think uh, over the next few months as we um, make our way through this unknown territory. I missed missed
2: the nineteen percent. I only got to seventeen percent. I got ripped off. But uh, you know, it's it's always interesting because anybody who went through there, any cent you get your hands on, you pay down the principal. Now, if you say to somebody who's got a two point six five percent mortgage, why don't you pay down your principal? They look at you from here. What planet did you come from? And and you got to sort of understand but that you know this is the interesting part of the interest rates it's always an assumption a guess where they're going to go interest rates need to go up to some degree not high by any means but we're creating so many powerful disincentives against saving saving gives investment investment gives economic growth super low interest rates forever are just incurring a lot of borrowing and the country and the world is awash in debt on the household, corporate, and government sectors. Uh, we can't go on like that forever. We don't want to go on like that forever.
0: No, the Piper will come a call. And uh, Professor Drummond, I will call on you again. I thought it was a fascinating article. It's worth the read, um, certainly in uh, the Globe and Mail. And I thank you for your time.
2: Okay, you're welcome. Go ahead.
0: That is Professor Drummond. Look, he's been around a while. He might know a thing or two, but he's also not the only person warning of this. So maybe it's time those in charge actually listen. Is the iron ring actually around long-term care? Because it's starting to sound like a lot of them are just being choked. And believe it or not, as we are in the middle of this second wave, there are several homes that now can't get liability insurance for COVID-19. And according to the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, homes are being offered new policies, but there's a lot of small print, which is the coverage for infectious disease will be no longer covered. We've seen some tactics used with bars and restaurants where they're seeing massive hikes to insurance rates or uh, that they can't get coverage, but when it comes to long-term care homes, what it means is that either these businesses can't get loans or lines of credit if they need to invest in the business, and it's leaving operators and caregivers personally liable. Laura Tamblyn-Watts is CEO of CanAge, and Laura, previously long-term care's uh, homes would get 5 to 10 million coverage for damages or claims related to infectious disease but then all the things changed over the summer what happened
1: well as you can imagine insurance companies are trying to limit their liability and for anyone who's had insurance you know that you can get updates in the mail that say we are no mm-hmm. longer covering this or we are no longer covering that In the case of long-term care, you need to have liability coverage and you need the liability coverage in order to operate. And so what's functionally happening is this. Long-term care homes will not be able to keep their doors open unless they have liability insurance. And what's functionally happening is they're not going to be able to get it. So government is going to have to come up with a solution.
0: Right. But, but they should have seen the problem coming. And the problem, and there are so many when it comes to long-term care, is if we lose any homes, uh, that means an even bigger shortage of beds and longer waiting lists. Because if you've had a loved one in long-term care, sometimes you can wait months, if not years, to get your loved one into that care. But is this an issue for both provincial-run, uh, pro- uh, government-run, as well as profit homes?
1: Yeah, this is actually even worse than that. This is for all homes run across this country. So that's 79,000 people in long-term care home in Ontario and all of the other people across this country as well. Because functionally speaking, you're not allowed to operate without insurance. And liability insurance is one of those critical pieces that you need to actually have. So Mm -hmm. how is it that they didn't think about it? I think it just speaks to the lack of thought, planning, and organization that governments are having with regards to long-term care. Because people in the sector knew as soon as the insurance companies started saying, hey, we're not going to cover you anymore, that this wasn't just a concern. This meant the difference between having the doors open or the doors closed.
0: Right. And the Insurance Bureau of Canada, they liken the situation as trying to get fire insurance while your house is on fire. Um, but, but this is affecting homes that didn't even see a case of COVID. And so there are homes being roped into this thing that, through no fault of their own, are simply being cut off. And what's important to know also
1: is it's not just about COVID. They're trying to make it cover all infectious spread well, we call it flu season for mm. a reason. We get it every single year, and it is absolutely predictable. So is pneumonia. So is Legionnaires and C. difficile and pertussis, all of the things that are common in our older adult population and something we always have to really fight against in long-term care because when you're having congregate housing and high-touch care, infection can spread. And so the very fact that we've been talking about Yes, we need to have a strategy, and yes, we need quality standards, both of which are true. But the degree to which government is not really thinking about addressing the problem can't be underscored enough when they didn't even think about the fact that the insurance companies could make it so that all long-term care would have to effectively shut
0: Right, but but there is a predatorial feeling to this and, and taking advantage of a situation. I get it. The insurance companies don't want to have to pay out more than, than they want to. There have been several long-term care homes that have seen a number of, of class action lawsuits. They, they have to protect themselves. At the same time, they liken it to buying insurance while the house is on fire. I look at it as changing the rules halfway through the race.
1: It is changing the rules halfway through the rate, and it's not just about one small piece. So let's use the example of something like flood insurance. So many people can't get flood insurance if they live in a floodplain, but you can still get house insurance. It doesn't mean that you can't have the house open, it just means that you're going to have to take steps against floods. That's not what this is. This is saying we won't give you any type of reasonable ability to purchase liability insurance, which is fundamental Mm -hmm. to actually owning a house or having a house. So it's not just taking a narrow piece and slicing it off and saying, oh, we're not just going to cover COVID-19. This actually, foundationally, makes it impossible to operate a home. So it's not the same. It does feel quite like changing the rules at a time where we need our long-term care home system more than ever
0: well certainly you know th- this is not an instability that homes need to be worrying about right in the middle of the second wave and so what is the timeline uh, Laura as far as as, um, as these homes being affected by this and and possibly closed it's incredibly
1: fast so most policies seem to be coming up about December 31 this year. And so homes will have a period of binding the way that anyone who renews their insurance would have a period of binding. You know, our best information is that we could see a loss of ability to actually function between January and April. And I'm talking this January to this April.
0: Right, in the third wave. (laughs) So then what is the response coming from the federal and the provincial government?
1: There hasn't been much. So the Ontario Long-Term Care Homes, on behalf of a large group of people who are working in this space wrote to the prime minister and the heads of all of the ministries of health across this country and the premiers and said this is an urgent, urgent issue. They formally wrote on October 15th and really have heard almost nothing back. But this issue started coming to bear in the summer when we started having conversations between the insurers and in government and no action was appreciably taken. So are homes worried? Yes. Should people be worried? Absolutely. This is an urgent issue that needs an urgent solution.
0: Yeah. And and sadly, as we're learning from all levels of government in this thing, and I get it, you know, they're, they're working with an impossible situation that, you know, they're learning, you know, on the fly. It's kind of like building the aircraft while you're already in the sky. But at this point, uh, we're months into this thing, and uh, and things like when we saw insurance rates going up for for businesses and restaurants, that should have been a cue that something's going to have to happen. And, if, and we're talking about clo- you know homes closing during a time of severe vulnerability. Uh, there isn't time for them to wait, and they should have gotten ahead of this.
1: Yeah, there's really no question that they should have got ahead of this. I mean, the insurers right now are already amending their policies to eliminate liability protection for all communicable diseases as they renew. And they're limiting their exposure again by really effectively closing the insurance marketplace to long-term care. So we're asking as a whole sector for the federal government to provide what's known as a backstop. Mm. And what that means is that the government will essentially provide um, a guarantee to the insurance company. It may not be a perfect solution, but it is a reasonable solution, and it is one that can be implemented by the federal government quickly while we try to find a longer-term response.
0: Just quickly before I let you go, what are you telling your uh, residents or, or family members, and what's the timeline like uh, if you don't get help immediately?
1: So we're saying right now that the system is in crisis and never before have we seen such a wave. So members and organization partner members of CanAge are speaking with one voice and saying, yes, we need to have significant reform in long-term care, but we also need to make sure that we have a longer vision because having like a fundamental question about whether or not they can get insurance just speaks to how poorly organized The governments are in this sector right now. So we're speaking with one big passionate voice and we better get that voice answered or voters are going to be going to the polls about it.
0: Well, you could be going sooner than you think. We'll see what happens uh, tomorrow. Uh, But, Laura, uh, you know, we'll keep on this because it is not a problem that uh, we should be dealing with. And and certainly your industry is not the only one, but uh, we'll continue to follow. But I appreciate your time on it. Thank you. Boy, oh boy! Just to add insult to injury, with everything else, and now we've got to deal with this. Uh, we will stay on this. It's because it's wrong.
1: I don't think you can compare the the dance studios uh, with with certain students over and over again to fitness areas. Not. not I don't want to knock the fitness folks because I, you know, I spoke passionately last week about a small boutique uh, fitness area that I'm going to visit in South Etobicoke. So. I'm, I'm doing everything I can to make, make sure that we get these places opened up as, as quickly as possible.
0: Not so sure that that explanation will fly. I mean, how can the province say yes to dance but no to dining and gyms A trick-or-treating for the kids? You know, there's a lot of debate and a lot of confusion over the Ford government's decision to reverse closures in dance studios that were shut down in hot zones across the province but can now open their doors. But then restaurants and gyms and kids trick-or-treating remains shut down. So those, you know, closed down, I think, are rightfully cheesed off because it does not make sense. Like, how is dancing any safer than going to dinner or or pumping iron? You know, are are they picking winners and losers here? Alex Kucharski, co-owner of F45 Training uh, Jefferson, joining us now. Good to have you, Alex.
3: Thanks for having me on the show again, Alex.
0: You were with us last week uh, speaking about your concerns and you represent a number of gyms, um, you know, in an association that you you, uh, built. I mean, you your main concern was getting shut down again. You have been shut down in certain zones, but now dance companies are are open. Does does that make sense to you?
3: It it really doesn't. Uh, You know, hearing that news yesterday left me extremely shocked and confused. You know, we're already dealing with being shut down again uh, with very little evidence. Uh, And then now there's this whole other layer to it where dance studios uh, are being allowed to open immediately and they're being exempt from these regulations when they offer essentially the same service as a fitness studio. And by no means do I want to, you know, I I don't think that uh, dance studios should be closed. You know, I fully support them being open, but I, you know, really need to call on the government uh, to be fair in their decision making uh, and also allow fitness studios to open as well.
0: Yeah, I'm of the mind that I don't want any business shut down if we don't have to shut them down. And so that's why I don't bit. find it, um, you know, I don't find it, uh, you know, meaningful that that they're going to allow certain sectors to open up, but others, I mean, you move around just as much as you well know, uh, physically dancing as you would, let's say, in a spin class where we just saw a major spreading event in Hamilton, but you're breathing in and you're breathing out and you're moving around.
3: Yes, you know, definitely there's aerobic uh, exercises performed in all of these facilities that you mentioned, whether it's a fitness studio offering uh, HIIT classes, a spin studio or a dance studio. Uh, At the end of the day, there's aerobic activity that, you know, it does include heavy breathing, but there is a lot of precautions put into place to prevent the transmission of COVID-19 in these facilities. Uh, And, you know, essentially, you know, the fitness studios uh, have been implementing these sorts of restrictions that they have announced today for dance studios since we've reopened in end of July, early August. uh, You know, that includes uh, physical distancing at all times, uh, a limit of people in the class, uh, as well as, uh, you know, having their members pre-register so that you are able to... Uh, know at any time who was in a specific class, uh, which would, of course, assist with any contact tracing if that uh, was needed.
0: Do you feel that the uh, province, and I I get it, it's not an easy thing for for Premier Ford. He's damned if he does, he's damned if he doesn't. But do you believe, do many of your uh, industry believe they're picking winners and losers?
3: Absolutely. That's what it feels like at this point. You know, I understand that, you know, in, in the press conference, you know, he said, well, if we now allow boutique studios Uh, What about, you know, other larger fitness facilities Uh, and, you know, he he does have a point like, you know, at what point do you stop? But I think that there needs to be a bit of more consideration given if he's, you know, taking a bit more of a nuanced approach with dance studios, that he needs to engage with the industry uh, and find out what is the approach that works for a boutique fitness studio that is very much like a uh, dance studio. Uh, And then what is the right solution for a larger big box gym? Uh, You know, I think that we can find solutions for everyone that will work. Uh, And I think it's really about establishing the right guidelines and health protocol and not about uh, just, you know, blanket shutting down an industry because uh, there's a, 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 you know, an increase in numbers that was predicted many months ago.
0: He did say, you know, and I I heard, you know, him leaning into the, you know, we'll look into it, uh, you know, see how quickly we can possibly open. Do you have hope at all that they're going to possibly open up earlier than than the full 28 days?
3: You know, that is what we we're really hoping for. Uh, you know, that is definitely an, an ask of ours is to open and exempt fitness studios without any delay, without waiting for this 28-day period. Uh, you know, hopefully that can happen. Uh, you know, if it takes a little bit of time and we get to the 28 days and we can reopen at uh, you know at, after this 28-day mark, I think that will be successful. But the longer that we go... Uh, you know, it's really going to become a lot more dire for, for these small business owners. You know, as part of our association, we represent 70 fitness studios across Ontario, and we recently surveyed them, uh, and they said that on average they had less than three months of financial runway to keep their studio open if they were shut down again. Uh, you know, now we're two weeks into this 28-day uh, shutdown, so for some of them, you know, they have two and a half months left of finances, especially because, uh, the, the rent relief program that the federal government has uh, recently announced, uh, you know, may not go into effect until, until late November as it hasn't passed legislation yet. So uh, certainly if the days are numbered uh, and, you know, if we can open immediately and we can find those ex- exemptions and make, make the right choices uh, with the guidelines for reopening, uh, you know, that would save a lot of hardship, um, you know, for, for, for a lot of small business owners.
0: Not to mention what happens if there's a snap election uh, with the Trudeau uh, government playing the games that they're playing, then, you know, there will be no legislation passed and that program will uh, fall between the cracks, harming, you know, thousands and thousands of businesses who, through no fault of their own, are stuck in this. And so, um, you know, what's your message then to the premier? I mean, I don't know what recourse you have or what your industry can do, but what is the plan of action?
3: you know what we want we want the we want to ask the 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 ford government to work with us to establish clear guidelines for us to be able to reopen uh you know without any sort of delay we provide a health service that improves the physical and mental well-being of ontarians which is so much more important uh in this in this time i think there was a study today that i saw uh the canadian press had written about that said one in four canadians report that their mental health has suffered uh Mm -hmm. and so you know we are, we are we are an essential service uh you know i have so many healthcare workers that tell me you know how much they rely on the gym and how much they feel how safe they feel in the facilities and you know these are the people who are taking care of us and we need to take care of them at some point too so you know really just want to implore the ford government to work with us to engage with us on on crafting these uh regulations to allow us to open uh immediately
0: Stay tuned. We'll see what tomorrow brings and what announcements uh, come. But we'll uh, keep an eye on this. Alex, thank you for uh, joining us, and I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday, 630 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.